Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, an in-depth look at social conservatism in Canadian politics. Does it have a place? And if so, what place is that? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. It is election fever if you talk to the people that are, quite frankly, the least interesting to talk to, which are those who have no other lives but politics, and I count myself in that group. But there is going to be a lot more discussion about it. All the rumors are in full force about whether we are going to the polls in July, in August, in September. And elections are important. We'll certainly be covering it on this show and at True North. But I want to take a look at one of the bigger picture issues in Canadian politics right now, that if you talk to some people shouldn't even belong in Canadian politics, should not be spoken about in the same vein as those seeking elected office, and that is social conservatism widely heralded by the media as the reason Andrew Scheer lost the 2019 election for the Conservatives, and we'll talk about that a little bit, and also a key part of the narrative that is uh, dogging Aaron O'Toole even still, despite him being very vocally not a social Conservative. He is still getting all the questions from the mainstream media that he would have if he were one. So I want to talk about this big question of what is the place, if any, that social Conservatism has in Canadian politics, and there is is going to be a little bit of a prescriptive element of this too. How should and how can politicians tackle this issue? I have a great panel of people that have been involved in this issue from all sides joining me. The co-founders of Right Now, which seeks to nominate and elect social or pro-life candidates specifically to Canadian politics, Alyssa Golob and Scott Hayward, and also the communications director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, Jonathan Van Maren. Jonathan, Alyssa, Scott, Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. I, I want to start with you on this, Jonathan, because you had a, a fantastic piece over at the Bridgehead where you uh, host a, a show and, and write and have some great content there. You spoke of the moral bankruptcy of Aaron O'Toole's Conservative Party. And this seems to be, although it's still early days, he's only been the leader for uh, just under a year. Uh, you're, you're making a point here that he's not the guy that's going to, to give social conservatives what they want at this point, it sounds like. Well, Aaron O'Toole seems to be the answer to the question, uh, who could be worse than Andrew Scheer? Because he doesn't actually seem to have any convictions that he actually wants to operate under. I have no idea what, what his moral vision would be. And unless you think that politicians should have no moral vision or moral compass whatsoever, I would wager that that's a bad thing. The point of my column mainly was that most of O'Toole's war room, a lot of people quoted in a fairly recent McLean's essay on the growing cleavage in the Conservative Party, is that social conservatism, once again, is sort of the boogeyman, and that any quarter given to social conservatives on any issue will turn into an automatic loss for Aaron O'Toole. And this is a really frustrating narrative because it's not backed by polling, it's not backed by data, it's not backed by the facts on the ground, it's not supported by the fact that 80% of the Conservative caucus just voted for, for a piece of pro-life legislation. It's just sort of one of these political truisms that's become dogma because it's been repeated so many times. 
and because the media happens to prefer it. So in my column, I just asked the question, uh, what would be considered a reasonable social conservative policy? Would it be something that a super majority of Canadians support, like a ban on, on gender selection abortion? Would this be something that the majority of Canadians are concerned about, uh, even such as sex changes for children with the growing um, prominence of the transgender issue? What would be the line in the sand that Aaron O'Toole and his conservatives are not willing to cross? Because from where I'm sitting, it just looks like if you can put the name social conservative on it, it's therefore scary and must be uh, must be backed away from at all costs. In short, uh, Justin Trudeau and his liberals and those on the left get to define all moral issues and conservatives can only ever say anything uh, about climate change and maybe having a better accountant than Trudeau does. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of important points there that we'll delve into over the next little while. And it actually lends to a question I had for you, Scott, because Jonathan lays out the point, I think, very clearly that there is this fear in conservatives that you're just not allowed to touch these issues, you're not allowed to tackle them. And, you know, you get some people that say conservatives need to be bold, that, you know, winning if you don't do anything doesn't really matter. But you actually have looked at the numbers and, and think that these are, in fact, winnable issues, contrary to the prevailing narrative you get among the political class and, and a lot of the media. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll talk specifically about um, some of the pro-life issues uh, because that's what our organization is focused solely on, and, and those are the numbers that I know. So, for example, like Jonathan mentioned um, the other week, as of recording uh, the segment here, we had Bill C-233, a private member's bill from Kathy Wagenthal, who is a member of Parliament uh, from rural Saskatchewan, seeking to more or less legally restrict sex-selective abortion. Of course, most of your viewers will know, Andrew, that in Canada, we're only one of two countries in the world where there are, is no law whatsoever regulating abortion, either federally or provincially. So, you know, this would be a, a fairly good piece of legislation from our perspective uh, to begin to bring Canada kind of into that average around the world. Um, it's a piece of legislation when you look at polling and supported by one of those super majorities that Jonathan talks about. You know, you're talking about 82% of Canadians across the country, 83% of Quebecers, you know, 80% plus of women specifically on this issue support legally restricting sex selective abortion. Uh, for the organization that Alyssa and I work with right now, back in September of 2020, we did a poll that not only asked, you know, if, if Canadians support something like this, but would it actually change their vote? And there were some really cool uh, things that we found in there. So, for example, 47% of females from the ages of 18 to 34 would be more likely to vote for a political party that promised to legally restrict sex-selective abortion as opposed to 6% who would be less likely to do so. When you go into Quebec, you know, 61% of those who voted for the Bloc Québécois in 2019 would be more likely to vote for a political party that promised to legally restrict sex-selective abortion. So these are all um, constituencies, voter blocks, that the Conservative Party of Canada desperately needs to actually win a majority government. And that's just one example. You know, you can look at uh, late-term abortion, you have some similar numbers there, pain cap capability abortion. So these are reasonable pro-life policies that are in many other different countries, both uh, in, in kind of the Western world and otherwise, and that are supported by a good swath of Canadians. There are votes that for whatever reason are being left, and seats for that matter, that are being left on the table by the Conservative Party of Canada. 
The the woman factor, I think, is interesting there. And Alyssa, I know you get this all the time because I, I see you uh, fielding all of these uh, troll attacks on, on Twitter. But but that that myth that's peddled that women don't care about these issues, that women are the ones that are the most put off by it, doesn't sound like that's actually the case. Absolutely not. And I mean, polling numbers show that uh, and politicians show that. I mean, Leslie Lewis in the last conservative leadership race surprised everyone and uh, won many more votes, uh, many more provinces, even became first place in some writings because of her common sense policies and her her pro-life stance. She said she had no hidden agenda and she had multiple pro-life policies like sex left of abortion and helping women in crisis pregnancies that resonated with people who are not only pro-life but who identified as pro-choice as well. So I think that these types of talking points resonate among all Canadians, most especially women like Scott mentioned, the sex selective abortion uh, bill was was supported by you know half of women in between the ages of 18 and 34, which is really important as well. So this isn't just a women's issue, it's a human rights issue, but women are definitely on board with these policies. Let's take a step back even further if we can here and, and define social conservative, because this is something where to right now, and you mentioned this, Scott, there's a focus on abortion specifically and, and the pro-life issue and pro-life politicians. But when a lot of people hear social conservative, I don't know if they think of it in narrow terms about specific issues or if they go even more broadly and, and think about, oh, you know, people that are trying to ban gay marriage or, or people that are trying to roll back the clock on, on gay rights. And, and I think you mentioned in your opening remarks, Jonathan, that there are a lot of issues that are, are social issues that are relevant in, in Canadian politics, whether it is on, on transgender issues, whether it is on sex-selective abortion. But do, you th do we have a, a working definition of, of what a social conservative is in a, a contemporary Canadian political context. No, right now, I, th I think social conservatives is understood generally uh, as reporters use it as sort of the pelvic issues, right? And the same sex, the same sex marriage debate is over and has been over in Canada for a very long time. There's nobody that that I know, even those who disagree with same sex marriage, who think that you know that's going to be rolled back. Although Trudeau and and the liberals understandably like to use that as sort of a fear tactic, right? The conservatives as people who want to take away your rights. But again, if, if you look at social conservative just as conserving social norms that had some value, that's when we do get into things like the transgender issue. And, and one of the reasons that's, that's such a particularly interesting debate is just like with abortion, you have in almost every other Western democracy, robust debates on these issues based on scientific facts, based on data, based on polling that just don't seem to happen here. So in the United Kingdom, for example, which is probably the most similar to us in regards to their, their, um, their political system. Uh, there's a robust debate going on around, um, so for example, transgender treatments for minors, right? You have left-wing newspapers like The Guardian that this month, month published an article that would never have made it into a Canadian newspaper talking about biological males playing on female sports teams. You have the National Health Service being excoriated by the public broadcaster over there, the BBC, for rushing people into transition. And there's sort of this robust debate even that's not restricted ideologically. You've got both left-wingers and right-wingers, conservatives and liberals kind of looking at the facts and debating the issue. Whereas here, if you raise any question whatsoever about any of these issues, whether you point to baby girls being aborted just because they're baby girls, when you talk about the fact that, you know, there's 
a huge spike in girls identifying as boys to the tune of thousands of percent uh, of a spike. Those are things you're just not allowed to talk about or you're labeled a social conservative, a bigot, and all of these things. And so the, the discussion just gets cut off. Now, in terms of defining social conservative, there are many different ways of addressing uh, social conservative issues. And if somebody like Aaron O'Toole came forward and said, look, I don't think this law or that law is politically viable right now, but I understand uh, that the pro-life movement wants there to be fewer abortions, they wanna save lives in the womb, and so we're going to look at the policies that have been done in countries like Hungary, in countries like Israel, even in countries like the Netherlands and Germany, which have resulted in a much lower abortion rate than we have here in Canada. And I'm willing to work with social conservatives to reach a goal that we can all agree is good, which is fewer abortions. That would make somebody like me really sit up and say, okay, so in good faith, he's going to reach out to a voter segment that he needs and is going to put forward his own ideas on how to reach the goal that we want to reach. But we don't hear any of that at all. It's just you can't say the A word and anything to do with LGBT alphabet soup issues cannot be touched because they're not viable, even though there's no polling and no data that indicates this is actually the case. One thing that's very interesting about that is that I'm convinced that a lot of the opponents to these issues don't want to have the discussion because they know that the facts won't be on their side. Uh, this is something that we see, for starters, in the lack of any legal limit on abortion. Most pro-choice advocates would be very appalled by an abortion in the third trimester, but they don't want to have the discussion because they don't want to open the door to let pro-lifers get an inch. Another example of this is when the Unborn Victims of Crime Act was a, a discussion a couple of times during the previous conservative government and people were resistant to it because they didn't want to have the dialogue and risk losing any ground whatsoever. So you are very right that there seems to be this, this decreasing uh, and shrinking boundary of which discussions can, can occur. And, and Stephen Woodworth, a longtime, uh, very pro-life conservative member of parliament, had wanted to just Let's have a debate. I, I'm not even advancing a policy. I'm saying let's have a discussion about this, which Canada needs. And there's no buy-in for it from a lot of the political elites and a lot of the parties, including, in many cases, the Conservative Party. So I don't know which of, of you, Scott or Alyssa, wants to take this one, but when you are talking to voters and you're trying to get them to get behind a candidate that you're supporting, how do you at all tell them that these issues can be advanced when there seems to be no platform for them, even in the Conservative Party of Canada or any other party. One of the things, uh, one of the reasons why we are we, where we are today in Canada, especially compared to other countries like the United Kingdom, uh, parts of the United States, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Germany, Poland, things like this, is because um, of what the pro-life movement has, quite frankly, not been able to accomplish politically for the last, you know, 40 plus years. Um, what, one of the things that we tell pro-lifers all the time is that when we show up, we win. And that is definitely the case when it comes to uh, nominations, when it comes to leadership races, when it comes to party policy conventions. And for our organization right now, we've only just started this process five years ago. So we're beginning to uh, really come to kind of maturity. Uh, we, we have, you know, 30,000 plus people in our database across the country. We keep growing. And as we keep growing and we find more volunteers and keep growing that database of pro-lifers who do exist in these ridings to get involved in the process, we'll begin to see more and more wins. So in the last five years, for example, you know, we've elected a net 150 new pro-life politicians to our federal and provincial legislatures. Now, of course, in order to actually pass legislation, we need to have those majorities. 
Um, and so we're, we're still like a few electoral cycles away from, from that. It, it's gonna take some time because we're essentially starting at ground zero. Um, but even you take something like uh, Kathy's bill, right? Kathy Wangtal's bill C-233 on uh, sex selective abortion. She got 82 votes on that bill. I, I was counting like she'd maybe get 71 or 72. There were a few different surprises. There were a few different members of parliament who voted for that legislation that uh, we were surprised at. And I think part of the reason that they voted for that legislation is A, it's innately good legislation, but B, they also know that you know, coming into an election campaign, probably sometime, you know, in September, one of the best ways for a conservative member of parliament, at least, to help ensure that they get enough volunteers knocking on doors is to actually give a good chunk of the, the base, which are pro-lifers, what they want. And this is one of the easiest things they can get. So um, I don't know if Felissa wants to expound upon that, but one of the things that, that we tell people is when you show up and you put the right people in place and you establish a foundation from which to build, we are going to get those not only electoral wins, but eventually legislative wins. And, and for Jonathan and what his organization does, those cultural wins as well further down the road. It's just getting involved in the process right at the beginning. I, I will let you expand on that, Alyssa, and I'll, I'll add to the question, if, if I may. Do you find that it's hard to summon the optimism that you can break through all this when you're talking to not just uh, voters and, and supporters and volunteers, but even potential candidates? Well, I think it's important to highlight the little wins as well as the big wins. And like Scott mentioned, when we have pro-life policies or constitutional amendments that are put forward and passed at conventions, that's um, a huge bonus. When we win these nominations, when underdog candidates like Sam Osterhoff beat party presidents like Rick Dykstra, we highlight those things. And we also highlight the fact that you know, these MPs that are putting forward legislation uh, are conservative MPs. So if you do have a pro-life conservative uh, running, it's, it's important to support them so that they can uh, be an additional vote to those types of legislative initiatives. So I think that just showing the power of the people is really important. And also translating that to show the party the power of their base, because you have to have a social conservatives in a winning coalition. You cannot shut them out at every uh, inch and think that you're going to win an election. And, the, you know, in the 2011, uh, in the 2011 federal election, Harper increased his vote uh, in the GTA because, uh, mainly because uh, he wanted to defend abortion overseas. So I think that really intensified uh, the voters and uh, they came out and they showed up. And I think that's what we need to do uh, as a party and as social conservatives as well. One point that I have always been insisted upon, and it's certainly not my thought, it's Andrew Breitbart who made the the, the phrasing in this manner famous of, of politics being downstream of culture, but politics are always, politicians are always going to be reacting and responding to the media, to stakeholders, to voters, and and there needs to be a, a base of support for them. And one thing that, that oftentimes the pro-life movement has neglected historically, not as much in recent years, is those uh, those cultural fights. And I know, Jonathan, this has been, I mean, you've literally written the book on this. I think several books on it, and it's something you do in your day-to-day your -day life and, and your job. You try to win over hearts and minds. But that process is a difficult one, and it takes a lot of time. So wh where is your assessment of how that cultural battle is right now? Yeah, so I want to make a, a couple of points. One that goes to the earlier comment you made, because this sort of dovetails right into what you just asked me, on how there's a lot of ignorance surrounding these issues in general. 
right? Most Canadians get the idea that, you know, the, the standard line of the Toronto Star, the National Post, the, the Winnipeg Free Press, like this is Canada, right? And, and, and because the editorial pages of these papers say social conservatives can't win, that means it's in fact the case. Well, the reality is, according to the National Post a couple of years ago, 80% of Canadians aren't aware that abortion is, is legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. So when you have politicians saying Canadians are happy with the status quo, well, Canadians aren't aware of the status quo. And what we find going door to door and having discussions on the streets is most of them are so shocked they don't actually believe us when we first tell them that Canada has no restrictions on abortion whatsoever. And the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, uh, for example, is fully aware that when Canadians find out what the status quo is, they disagree with it, which is why a couple of years ago, uh, when our colleagues at We Need a Law put billboards across the country that just had the simple statement, Canada has no abortion laws. There was one of them actually like 10 minutes from my office uh, in town. Um, they put these billboards across the country and immediately the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, one of these billboards torn down, right? It didn't have like a picture of an aborted baby. It didn't say abortion kills children. Like it didn't have abortion stops a beating heart, right? It didn't have any of these things. It just was a statement of legal and political fact, right? Canada has no abortion laws. And they can play to the Advertising Standards Canada to get it pulled down. And, and these billboards were actually ruled against because they literally didn't want Canadians to know what the facts on the ground were because they knew what would happen if they found out. Now, it's interesting when you say, what are the toughest cultural challenges? And I would say that they're twofold. Um, for, for, you know, sort of postmodern people of European descent, to be honest, those are the hardest people to convince to become pro-life because generally speaking, they've abandoned the pro-life position at some point. But Canada is a profoundly multicultural nation. And what we have found is that in almost all, all immigrant neighborhoods, neighborhoods predominantly inhabited by new Canadians, uh, that it's it's like shooting fish in a barrel in terms of going door to door. We don't even have to convince them to become pro-life and lay out the arguments. We simply have to let them know what the status quo is. When we were going door to door, uh, for example, in an Indo-Canadian neighborhood in Brampton, it was starting to get difficult to make it down the street because people kept on inviting us in, you know, for a bottle of water. We got invited in for supper at one point. And they were just horrified by what they were actually seeing. And this runs contrary to the media narrative. And I'll give you one really funny example of this. We were going door to door in one neighborhood. Again, it was an Indo-Canadian neighborhood. Uh, and I spoke with one woman who looked at a postcard we handed her and it showed a, a photo of an abortion victim. And she said, this goes way too far. Like it was just appalled that this was happening in Canada. And that night on, on both uh, CTV and Global, they talked about how um, CCBR had done an inflammatory project, much opposed by those who had interacted with it. And they showed footage of a, the woman looking at the postcard saying, this goes way too far. And the story made it sound like this woman thought the pro-lifers had gone too far by letting her know what the status quo was. In reality, she was for the first time finding out what goes on in this country and saying that goes way too far. So I would say like the biggest struggle we have in Canada on the cultural front is attempting to address like the massive amount of ignorance. Most polling on abortion in Canada is garbage because the people that get polled aren't actually aware of what the status quo is. Um, many of them we've found don't read English speaking newspapers. There's these, there's many, many uh, Punjabi, Urdu, Hindi um, newspapers with massive circulations in Toronto where large communities only interact with those, which is, as you'll remember, how Patrick Brown got caught trying to say one thing in one language and another thing in another language on, on sex education. He thought he could play that game because people kind of didn't read um, the opposing newspapers. Um, but the, on the ground, things are a lot more encouraging. So people often ask me, how do you get 
How do you not get depressed talking to people all the time about abortion in this country? It's because so many people, when they discover what's going on, are as outraged and upset about it as we are. And what we need to figure out how to do is to tell them what's going on, mobilize them, and then connect them with groups like right now so we can create a political coalition that cannot be ignored. Well, Jonathan mentioned Patrick Brown, so let's go there. There is no shortage of politicians who, in nominations and in leaderships, uh, actively and aggressively court social conservatives because they know they're organized, they know they have money, they know they're dedicated volunteers. But then once they get through that internal party hurdle, are not only nowhere to found, but it's uh, nowhere to be found, but in some cases actively hostile to social conservatives. Patrick Brown's a notable example of that. The criticisms have also been le leveled towards Doug Ford, who was all gung-ho about uh, ending some of the, the gender education and the sex ed curriculum, and then really what was nowhere to be found on these issues. Andrew Scheer, solidly pro-life social conservative, but could not articulate and would not articulate that during an election. So, I mean, Alyssa, how do you stop that part from happening? Of on one hand, politicians saying, yeah, we need your support. We know it's a, a good way to get across the finish line internally, but then you guys are garbage once they have to appeal to the general population. Oh, well, I think the main way is to no longer be the kingmakers and start naming the king. Uh, oftentimes, these uh, these leadership candidates are relying on social conservative second and third votes, thinking that our first choice candidate won't win. And we've shown in the last few leadership races that's becoming uh, that's not becoming the case anymore. And the most recent is with Leslie Lewis um, and how well she did in the leadership race. So we don't have to rely on the Doug Fords or the Aaron O'Tools anymore to kind of tell us one or two policies that they think we want to hear and then are nowhere to be found after the leadership race but actually have our number one choice win uh, in the leadership races. And as Jonathan and Scott mentioned, the numbers are on our side. We just need to educate people about the laws or the lack of laws in Canada on abortion to intensify those votes and to get them involved in the political process. And that's really why all of us are involved is in order to have those wins and win big. One thing I learned as a candidate in 2018 is that your job is not to win over people. You're not having arguments or you know Socratic dialogues at the door. You're identifying your support and you're moving on. There's a, there's a speed to it. Whereas uh, Jonathan, you were talking about uh, your uh, CCBR teams that can go and take the time and have the discussions and and get invited in for dinner. Uh, Scott, I know you've been up against this because you, because you have to tap into existing support. I mean, when when volunteers that are are working with pro-life candidates are going out, they're not advancing the pro-life message. They're trying to get a candidate that's already on side elected by people in the community. But there is a, a persuasion element that, that I wonder if it's missing. And I, I'm curious how you sort of wrap around that and what you do. Well, I did to kind of go back to your original question about, you know, the issue of uh, certain politicians saying that, like, hey, I, I'm pro-life and here's a few different policies and I need your votes. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and, and then, you know, I'll go implement this or I promise to do this. The only time that we've really kind of come across a bit of an issue with that would be with uh, leadership candidates. So, for example, uh, we used the wonderful uh, <laughs> example of Patrick Brown. That was before our organization existed. And I think yeah, your, your hands it, are clean on that one. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. That's right. And I think a lot of um, uh, candidates who want to engage, particularly with our organization, uh, see the example of Patrick and want to avoid that. Um, so, so like Alyssa said, like uh, we're getting to the point that we're no longer um, becoming kingmakers, that we're actually um, crowning our own king or maybe in the future a queen. 
um, to lead these political parties. Um, what I will say though, however, is when you get to a, a level just a little bit below that, when it comes to uh, nominating people who are gonna be running for uh, federal provincial office as an MLA, MHA, MNA, MPP, or federally as a member of parliament, uh, we find that uh, those people definitely, uh, for the most part, I should say, uh, follow through. They follow through on introducing legislation, voting for that legislation, and things like that. And, and what I think a lot of people have to realize and remember is that we don't live in a presidential republic like south of the border. We live in a Westminster parliamentary democracy. So, you know, whether you're talking about Doug Ford, Andrew Scheer, Aaron O'Toole, um, they're, they're one of many votes within their legislatures. So that's not to say that leadership candidates don't matter and it makes a difference. That's why we're involved in it. But I would say like the, the, the kind of the, the problem that you identified is more kind of in the box with, um, with uh, uh, leadership candidates as opposed to you know, your regular MPPs or MPs or MLAs. Um, in, in terms of door knocking and connecting people with uh, uh, pro-life candidates to, to get them elected, um, it, the, the persuasion aspect of it is something that, that Jonathan's group does. And it, it's something that um, prior to the 2019 election, our two organizations worked kind of closely together on targeting different, uh, different ridings and, and um, kind of making sure we hit the right neighborhoods and whatnot. And that's something that we'll probably continue to do going forward. Of course, the COVID-19 restrictions change a lot of that stuff. And in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, the culture informing law and, and the Breitbart um, quote of, of law being downstream from culture. Law also informs culture. It, it's, it's a one-two punch. It, it works in tandem and you have to advance both at the same time. So a really good example of that is in the United States uh, when President Barack Obama was um, uh, in power there from to, uh, 2008 to 2016, uh, there was something like over 400 different pieces of pro-life legislation passed at state levels. So things like um, defunding abortion with taxpayer money, um, particularly with Planned Parenthood, things like uh, requiring parental consent or notification for minors who are seeking an abortion, which really, really, really drove down the abortion rates, or things like uh, requiring to view an ultrasound or um, um, being fully informed of, of some of the short and long-term uh, psychological and physical side effects uh, of abortion. Like All those things not only reduce the abortion rate, but if you looked at particular Pew, Pew and Gallup research polling from 2008 to 2016 in those states, um, not only did you see the decrease of the abortion rates of these pieces of legislation, but you also saw in the polling, the number of people who identify as pro-life increase in those states and the number of people identified as, as pro-choice, hmm. pro-abortion, we're gonna say decrease. So as much as the culture informs law, uh, and I'm not discounting that, law also informs culture, which is why our organizations work in tandem. And one other quick point is, Jonathan makes an absolute great, fantastic point, and Alyssa kind of alluded to as well, talking about the GTA. Like, like really, if you look across Canada, if the Liberals and Conservatives want to form a majority government in this country, you're looking at two general swing areas. Number one is the Greater Toronto Area, which there are 58 seats, of which probably about 35 are actually swing. And then you look at Metro Vancouver, when there is about uh, 20 seats or so, and about perhaps... 12 or 15 of them in our swing seats. So, so th those are your battlegrounds. And in those battlegrounds, um, you have a lot of new uh, Canadian uh, groups. So one example I'll give Andrew real quick is uh, about a year ago, uh, one of the Eastern Catholic bishops in the GTA got a hold of me. We, we were at a meeting for a different issue. And he said, Scott, when all these COVID-19 restrictions are done, can you please come into my cathedral on a couple of Sundays and just talk about what you do? Because 
I, I, he said, like, when I talked to my parishioners, like maybe 10% of my parishioners actually went out and voted. And when you look at the poll by poll data, because each riding has about 180, 200 different polls. When you look at the poll by poll data, the polls in the 2019 uh, federal election in the GTA that had a lower than average turnout are the neighborhoods that have a higher percentage of uh, immigrant communities, new Canadian communities. So it's not like new Canadians who are, you know, Eastern Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Orthodox Jew, different sects of Muslims, um, Hindus, Sikhs. It's not like they're necessarily voting liberal. They're just not voting at all because the conservatives actually aren't talking about their issues. So all these things work together. They work in tandem. And it's something that is really exciting in the pro-life movement. Talking about optimism again, like once these COVID-19 restrictions are gone, we're able to talk to these communities and get them involved. I think the next 2030 is going to look way different for the pro-life movement, both culturally and politically in this country than, you know, 2010, 2015. I'd like to, if we can, expand on that and talk about the intersection of pro-life activism and partisanship specifically tied to a, a political party because it used to be in Canadian politics that you could be pro-life and have a home in politics regardless of, of your party. Now, I don't know if there were any or many pro-lifers in the NDP, but uh, certainly in the Liberals, there was a, a large constituency of, of pro-life MPs going even further back. You had a significant number of Liberals that voted against legalizing gay marriage even, including uh, Ralph Goodale, the now High Commissioner to the United Kingdom. But now the the only party that even allows pro-life voices is the Conservative Party, which is not a pro-life party explicitly. You have people of, of different views on this. But there are a lot of people that are, are purists in this, on this issue, and they don't want to support a party that's not going to go all the way. There are also the issues of people that might not even be conservative, but if they are pro-life, where are they supposed to vote? And, and I know that you, Scott, and, and you, Alyssa, specifically have had a lot of criticism from people that were seeing People's Party candidates that were far more pro-life than Conservative Party of Canada candidates. But as we know, the PPC didn't stand a shot at, at electing uh, anyone in the last election. And, and here we are again, a lot of the similar discussions. So let's talk about this, because really, the when you talk about electing a pro-life candidate, you're only realistically talking about a Conservative Party of Canada candidate, are you not? Well, before Justin Trudeau, we could have pro-life liberals, and I'm hoping that post-Justin Trudeau, we can also do the same. And it's important for pro-lifers to get involved in leadership races for other parties, uh, like the Liberal Party, if there is a supportable candidate who will even, at minimum, allow pro-lifers to run for that party. So I think that's really important as well. Um, in Saskatchewan, for example, the NDP leader there um, got in, in kind of hot water a few elections ago for talking more for having some pro-life talking points. So he is personally pro-life. And um, so that, that's an interesting conversation to have in Saskatchewan, where uh, there are a lot of pro-lifers who do associate with the NDP, but, uh, but not on social issues. So uh, no matter what party you belong to or what issues are important to you, uh, we encourage people, pro-lifers, to get involved in that political process, because it's only by nominating and electing candidates that are supportable and even leadership uh, candidates that will actually see a change and will open up that spectrum because it is a bipartisan issue 
there's been multiple polls that show that people within the liberal and NDP parties uh, would be more likely to vote for a party or a candidate that's willing to restrict sex-selective abortion. In Quebec, for example, like Scott mentioned, you know, the Conservative Party is always going after Quebec seats, yet 61% of those who voted for the bloc in the last election would be more likely to vote for a candidate willing to uh, restrict sex-selective abortion. Uh, these are the types of things and outreach that uh, pro-lifers need to do and to encourage people to get involved in whatever party they belong to. I actually ended up being, I, I wouldn't, shouldn't say immersed because I was only peripherally paying attention to it, but in a, a Twitter fight that uh, Jonathan was having with someone because I had retweeted his column about the conservatives being morally bankrupt. And then I, I had immediately on that people descending to say, well, you must want Justin Trudeau to win. And, and there is a lot of that I, I've noticed, Jonathan, where, where people who you know perhaps hate the conservative approach to this issue are, are just so focused on defeating the liberals or defeating the other that uh, they, they go along with it and, and don't actually advance any of these issues internally. So how do you deal with that? Well, like part of the problem is difficult to deal with because when you have semi-literacy and social media, um, the results are often the sort of tragic um, things you saw on that on that Twitter stream. Because if, if, if you'd read the article closely or anything that any of us say, um, nobody's actually saying, well, vote for Trudeau then, which is a really sort of ignorant and boring thing to say in response. I'm going to vote conservative in the next election because my MP is Leslie Lewis. If I was an Aaron O'Toole's riding, I wouldn't vote for him. This isn't really difficult. You vote for the most electable pro-life MP in the riding that you're in. If the concern, and, and, and so a lot of these people spin it around, right? You're responsible for voting for the most garbage candidate the conservatives can scrape up, right? Like you have to vote for Michelle Rempel because that's who the conservatives are offering you in this riding. Well, reverse, I'm the voter. You're supposed to appeal to me. So maybe give me somebody I actually want to vote for or get a bad candidate to pitch me good policy so I still want to vote for that person rather than the other way around. So uh, for me, I, I am an issues voter and I'm primarily a single issue voter, although I have half a dozen of them that are really important to me. Um, I thus far have consistently voted conservative because in every instance in three provinces where I voted, I've ended up with a solid pro-life MP. But if I was one riding over, for example, um, I'd probably either spoil my ballot or I'd vote for the most winnable other candidate, even if that candidate was you know, the, the CHP with 350 votes, just because I'm not going to give my vote, which people fought and died to give me the right to cast, to somebody who thinks the babies can get killed in the womb. And I'm as pragmatic as they come, as are, as are everybody else on this call, but my pragmatism does have limits. And where, where those limits crop up are when I'm expected to vote for somebody like you know Michelle Rempel or David McKenzie. How do you deal with that, Scott? Because I, I know you were fielding a lot of uh, criticism from people in the 2019 election for not endorsing uh, pro-life PPC candidates. Do you take a, a similar view to Jonathan on that, or do you go e even more in the electability realm? Well, I, again, like I think a lot of people um, in Canada, unfortunately, and perhaps this is to the literacy that Jonathan was talking about, I think is to um, poor public education on civics, we don't live in a presidential republic. We don't cast ballots for who's going to be the prime minister of Canada. We cast a ballot for who is going to be our member of parliament federally or MPP provincially, what have you. So in the last election to say that we uh, supported just pro-life conservative candidates, that's not entirely true. We also supported pro-life PPC candidates granted in not many ridings. Now we did tell our supporters in those ridings like, hey, this is your most winnable pro-life candidate even though they're polling at, you know, two or 3%. You know, you're asking us how we recommend you vote. That is how we recommend you to vote. 
that's not necessarily how we recommend you to spend your time as a volunteer, um, because you know a 20 minute drive away in another riding, there is a pro-life candidate, likely a conservative, who's actually polling really well, that's in a tight riding that needs like a couple more volunteers to take it over the top. And so that's kind of our approach to it is, you know, for your vote, vote for the most winnable pro-life candidate in your riding, regardless of political party affiliation. And then if you're in a reasonable drive uh, within your area of where you live, volunteer for the pro-life candidate that has the best chance of winning that needs your help. And if you live in, you know, rural interior BC and, you know, Mel Arnold is your member of parliament and, and he's likely going to win with uh, a large percentage of the vote. Well, you know, go and door knock maybe once a week or once every two weeks for Mel and pick up the phone and start making phone calls for uh, a pro-life candidate who's going to be in a tough riding, which, uh, you know, for a lot of conservative candidates at this rate, is going to be likely a lot of them this coming election um, and, and, and put your help that way. So that's kind of how we as an organization approach the issue on uh, various candidates. That's something that we were very crystal clear about in the last uh, federal election campaign. We never, ever have ever uh, recommended that people vote for a pro-abortion uh, conservative candidate, uh, and we never will. Um, we're not interested in electing a conservative majority. We're interested in electing a pro-life majority. Probably a lot of them will be conservative MPs. At some point, we have to realize that not all of them are going to be conservative MPs, which gets to the back, back to the point that you're talking about, Andrew, of getting involved in other political parties. One last point about that, I will say, getting involved in other political parties, which is something that our organization is looking to do going forward into you know, the rest of this decade, is that the longer that the conservative party of Canada in particular doesn't actually realize, or at finally, I think they do, I think a lot of people at HQ and around the leader do realize it, but it's just, they won't admit it. Um, don't finally admit that like, hey, we need some reasonable pro-life policies to actually win a majority government. The longer they don't embrace that, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau is not gonna be leader of the Liberal Party forever. Like Alyssa said, there's gonna be a leadership race, which hopefully we can get involved in, and hopefully pro-lifers can make an inroad. And if the Liberal Party of Canada in the next relatively, you know, short future, I'm talking the next five, seven, maybe 10 years, if they actually adopt a reasonable pro-life policy like banning sex selective abortion or late-term abortions or paying capability abortions, and the conservatives are behind on that, the conservatives will be shut out of government for decades, maybe even opposition as official opposition. So they got to really like get their, you know, get their butts in gear and get their heads screwed on right, because they're missing a huge opportunity here going forward. And I should just say to people, I'm not telling you how to vote and True North is not telling you how to vote. We're, we're presenting this for information because these are, I think, important issues. And it's valuable to see how social conservatives are approaching them and navigating them. And I, I think certainly political parties should pay attention to this. As we wind down, I'm going to ask you all the, the same question here. Try to, to keep your answer brief. And I'm, I'm going to start with you, Alyssa, so you get the, the, less, the, the least amount of time to think about an answer. But are you optimistic? I absolutely am optimistic. I mean, am I optimistic that uh, we're that the Conservatives will win the next election and that all our pro-life MPs will keep their seats? No. And a big reason is because Erin O'Toole has uh, voted against sex-selective abortion bills and done other things to social Conservatives that have turned them off. And like I said, you can't have a winning coalition if you don't have SOCONs in your vote. Um, but I am optimistic for the pro-life movement. As Scott mentioned, we've drastically increased the number of pro-life politicians. We have very 
very strong leadership uh, candidates that are come, that have come forward and will come forward in future. Um, and uh, we're getting more votes on pro-life pieces of legislation than we have in the past. So I think these are all very positive steps forward. And it's only a matter of time before we finally pass much needed legislation that will help women, that will support women, and that will save children. Jonathan, optimistic? Um, I, I would say that that depends on on a number of different factors. So I agree with what with, the, with what Alyssa said absolutely. And, and on the ground, like again, the coalition exists; it just hasn't been cobbled together yet, right? There are there are many communities of people who think what we think that we have not yet managed to inform and to bring into the coalition. What I honestly think this depends on is actually having a transformative paradigm-smashing leader. And I said this very bluntly when Leslie Lewis ran last time. I think that what the pro-life movement needs is somebody who is consistently pro-choice, has the guts to actually speak on it clearly and articulately, uh, has the guts to defend the pro-life position on TV, as Leslie Lewis did, and quite frankly is a female addressing this issue. I would pay a lot of money uh, to watch her clean the floor with Justin Trudeau on the issue of abortion. So really, I, I do think that to a degree, um, we'll see a, the, a paradigm shift on this issue when we see a, a change in leadership. And, and I'm a big fan of, of Leslie Lewis or somebody like her as being the person who can really take this ball and carry it forward. And I'm going to assume it wasn't a Freudian slip or uh, you wanted a consistently pro-life leader, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, good. And last but not least, Scott, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm incredibly optimistic because I like, listen, my background, I'm a chartered professional accountant. I'm a numbers guy, right? I'm the boring numbers guy. These two can attest to it, and you can as well, Andrea. I usually bother you with different texts throughout the week, like, did you check out these numbers, these polls, and stuff like that. So I, I guess in a, in a way, uh, I'm a bit of an empiricist that way. And, and so when I just look at the facts, when I just look at the numbers, I see the opportunity, and I see the return on investment that we can make as a pro-life movement. Like Jonathan said, those, those constituencies, they're there, they exist, we know they exist. Once these COVID-19 restrictions are finally gone, uh, our organization is going to hit the ground running, finally with three people working at one time, which will be incredibly helpful. And I think that is really going to fuel a lot of um, wins going forward over the next, uh, into 2030 for the rest of the decade. I think 2030, the way that we're going is going to look a lot different than uh, 2020 or 2015 in a, in a good way. Jonathan Van Maren from the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform, Scott Hayward and Alyssa Golub from right now. Always great to talk to you both, especially, or all three of you, especially all at one time. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Well, that was a, a fantastic discussion. Great folks. I, I've had a, a number of interactions with them personally and professionally. I count them all as good friends, and it was great to uh, chat with them all in this context as well. With that being said, we have to bid adieu for now, but we'll be back in a few days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.